This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table, where we discuss issues related to God and culture. And today our topic is the global cultural engagement. And my expert uh, sitting next to me today is Dr. Ramesh Richard, who has been here at Dallas Seminary with me, uh, low these many decades. Right. Uh, and uh, I'll let Ramesh tell his story in a second, but it's a pleasure to have him with us. He has an international ministry and is well known to many around the world for his global perspective on, on Christianity. Ramesh, welcome to the table. Well, thank you, Daryl. What a joy uh, that God had all these years prepared to be working together and bringing us into some uh, incredible moments of opportunity and impact, and I'm honored to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Let me just dive right in and begin by simply asking a little bit about your background. Uh, uh, so. Uh, where you came from, how you came to Dallas to begin with, and uh, and then we'll move into the ministry phase in a second. Great. Um, by my name and my face, they would probably be able to discern that I have a South Asian, actually. My early years were in, were in southern India and uh, lived there till, till my college years, came to Dallas Seminary for a few years, then returned to northern India to be a pastor. Uh, for a while, and then uh, Dallas Seminary asked me to consider coming back. And so I've been this time around uh, about uh, 25 years at the, at the school. But together, I think we graduated about the same time, uh, Daryl. I wanted to catch up to the ones who were really brilliant in the class of 79, <laughs> you and Daniel Wallace and others. So I, I hastened my studies and sensed urgency there to, to graduate with you. Now, where in, exactly in India did you grow up? I grew up in Chennai, mm-hmm. is in southern India. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had a long history of the Christian faith there, mm-hmm. uh, 200 years or more. And uh, I had the advantage of my forefather coming to know Christ, a man who is a temple priest as well as a fanner in the king's court. Oh, wow. And uh, because he embraced the Lord Jesus, I I had an advantage several generations later. Didn't make me a Christian, but surely gave me an advantage. So this is several generations back in your family? Yes, about 200 uh, plus, actually 220, 230 years, and the East German uh, Lutheran missionaries brought the good news to southern India. Hmm. And when the wall fell down in 1989, I was there in a couple of weeks after the, the uh, Berlin Wall fell and the Brandenburg Gate, and addressing about 700 young men and women in eastern Germany, I told them I came to return the compliment of 200 years ago. Oh, wow, that's great. You know, I was in, that was a sabbatical year um, for me in, uh, in Germany, and I was. Uh, across the, the the divide, if you will, um, several times, including a trip to Romania within six weeks after Ceausescu was shot to yeah. take relief into orphans and that kind of thing. It's interesting. It was an amazing moment. It's about 20 years old now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the world is still reeling from those decisions. 
um, the addition of eastern Germany to the western part. Uh, there are about three or four areas in the world, Daryl, where the systemic uh, impact of choices are very clear. One is the North Korea-South Korea border. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second is the East German-West German border uh, for those decades when they were divided. And just a few meters across from each other, you had the world's finest cars, Mercedes-Benzes, and, and the other side of it were the yep. Trabans put together by chewing gum and and, and rubber bands, uh, just the systemic uh, impact of, of choices that people make. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Mercedes-Benz, I get personal here, but the Mercedes-Benz uh, automobiles are made in Stuttgart, which is just outside of Tübingen, where I've uh, done my sabbaticals, and I've been to that museum uh, several times. Not that I'm a big car fan, but it's it's just hard to pass up when you can, can get there. Um, your your father also was a believer. Uh, I've met him, a dear, dear man. He had a terrific influence on your life? Yes, yeah, he, uh, great influence, still does. Uh, he and my mother, uh, they were nominal uh, Christians and did not have a personal relationship with, with the Lord Jesus. And one day, uh, going to church, they were late, heard some music from another congregation, went in, that attracted them. The pastor visited them in their home um, later and asked them the question if they uh, were Christians. And my mother said she was rather offended because she had a picture of Jesus in, uh, you know, on top of their, of their dining table. Huh. And, and this uh, pastor actually asked them if they, they knew Christ personally. So in their adult years, after I was born, is when they welcome the Lord Jesus personally. Now, the makeup of India, let's talk about India as a country first. Um, the makeup of India in terms of religious affiliations, how does that, how does that break down? Yeah. India is a secular uh, democracy, uh, constitutionally so, but the majority are uh, from the Hindu faith, and inside Hinduism is as much a variety as there is inside the Christian faith and the Islamic faith. But 80-some percent would be uh, from the Hindu faith. And then we have a very large population of Muslims as well, uh, depending on who counts between 12 and 15 percent. But 12 and 15 percent of 1.2 billion people is a very large, large people uh, group. And then uh, we have Christians who have been there from the very beginning of the faith when, according to some people, uh, historical evidence, but but often accretion with with legend, as you are so capable of discerning those two, Daryl. Uh, they they count two point six percent Christians, but some think the much much higher because of a vast movement of the Spirit of God on the country of India. His, uh, you know, lots of places where where there was no uh, evidence of the faith. Um, but the last 20, 30 years, uh, just powerful uh, presence of Christ, church p- plans, um, movements of missionaries inside the nation, which is really about 25 nations uh, in the borders of India. So God, so God is doing some, some wonderful things there. Now, um, is the distribution of Christians um, concentrated in one part of the country, or is it pretty even? I mean, I know I'm, I'm aware of uh, – Christian presence in in the southern part of India in particular, yes. but um, but is it is it distributed or is it pretty much concentrated? Uh, it is is very concentrated in the southwest part where the apostle Thomas, the doubting apostle, 
I think India has been doubting ever since he visited India. Uh, he uh, established his first congregations, and there's a huge uh, tradition of Christianized uh, cultural uh, convictions in, the, in that part, southwest part. And then the northeastern part, which is the highest concentration of Christians in the world. Actually, there is one state of India which might be the highest concentration of Christians in the whole world, 90-some hmm. percent, maybe 95 hmm. percent. So. Mm-hmm. Now, one other feature of Indian Christianity that I'm aware of is is the movement recently in the last few decades, maybe less than that, uh, among the Dalits. Can you explain what, what's happening there? Yes. In a strong sociological strata, which first started, the caste system first started simply as uh, occupational vocational classifications. Uh, four major castes then became multiplied. We have at least 2,000 castes now. Uh, Explain what a caste is for someone who might not a, know. A caste is simply a a role, uh, task stratification of, of society. Those who are warriors, those who are business people, those who are religious or Hindu te- uh, temple priests. And then there is a, a fourth, which are seen as, as untouchables. Mahatma Gandhi uh, actually attempted to elevate them, to see them as the very ch- children of God. Uh, the human heart is corrupt and must define themselves uh, over against uh, other people's expectations and at other people's expense. So the the lowest of the lowest castes, mm-hmm. which are socioeconomically very, very low, uh, are considered untouchables. And then there are some who are less than untouchables as well. And because uh, vocation and occupation has categorized them, there's very little uh, social intercourse between uh, between the lowest castes and the highest They're castes. They're almost treated as non-human. Is that, would that be fair to say? Uh, you know, um, I, I think it would be fair to say that, as hard as it is for me to describe them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so our Christian conviction about the image of God mm-hmm. uh, in every person, and not the... Uh, not that every person has divinity in them, but the dignity that comes from the image of God is a powerful liberating force. Mm-hmm. Among those who do, for example, manual scavenging. Manual scavenging is the most horrid of all menial tasks. When uh, people of these lower levels actually have to scavenge the human excrement mm. of the higher caste and then get rid of them. Mm. As a result, there is you know diseases and and um, stigma mm-hmm. uh, across across this group. However, India is on the threshold of massive change, huge economic growth. A recent Financial Times article says that uh, India uh, is richer than Britain and also poorer than Africa hmm. because we have uh, Indian companies which have now bought Jaguar and Land Rover. Uh, and so on, but uh, but also poorer than the poor in terms of um, education and, and and other social needs. So the Dalits are part of this untouchables group, basically? That is correct, and uh, there is a movement among Christians in, in order to give them dignity in terms of uh, the entire social caste system they they have made inroads into the Dalits. And, and my understanding is is that many of them are becoming Christians, and in effect, it's almost uh, the the product of that is almost 
at a social level revolutionary because of of the the affirmation of humanity that is coming to the uh, to the deletes in India, and uh, that is both the good and the uh, downside of it. The good side is that they're coming to a faith which gives them dignity. The downside is it could be simply a sociological reality rather than a spiritual conviction. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, that that's India uh, in a, in a glimpse, and that gives a, uh, everybody a sense of kind of your background before you came to the states. As you mentioned, you've been here uh, twenty five. Uh, plus years teaching at the seminary. Let's talk about what you do now, which is besides teach here at the seminary, you are uh, the president of REACH. Uh, explain what REACH is. When Dallas Seminary uh, invited me back, uh, they made a wonderful gift uh, to me in, in giving me time to uh, reach into our world. When we were going through the deliberations of, of my return, the seminary asked how much time I'd like to be away. I said every other month. And uh, the, the seminary said, we can give you the time to do that, but not the resources to do that. There's basically six uh, businessmen here in Dallas who said every other month means one trip overseas uh, for each of us to underwrite. And, mm-hmm. and we put together a little organization called REACH simply to undergird my global proclamation ministry. The vision of REACH, uh, Daryl, is to change the way 1,000 million individuals think and hear about the Lord Jesus. Uh, I come from a people-rich country, so what we've just talked about is is a great segue. Mm -hmm. If you open my chest at the back, you'll find the phrase, large numbers of individuals, not Mm -hmm. large numbers of people, not masses of people, but large numbers of individuals. And uh, so I uh, almost have an Aspergian focus on, on large numbers of individuals who, are without knowledge of Christ, uh, will have the highest number in history and for eternity uh, living right now. And so uh, REACH is uh, guided by a large number of individuals' vision. Uh, the mission is to promote the Lord Jesus worldwide. We do that through evangelizing opinion leaders and strengthening pastoral Mm -hmm. leaders in order to reach a large number of individuals. So uh, over these last 25 years that REACH has been in existence, the seminary and a symbiotic relationship has allowed me to represent the school all over the world, but also um, REACH undergirds what God has put on my heart to do, both in gifting and calling. You know, I think you're the only person who's allowed away more during the semester than I am in terms of uh, our schedule, in terms of our travel. Let me uh, let's talk about the global proclamation aspect of what you're doing here more recently. Uh, explain what's involved in that. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. All right. Um, the, the, the human uh, situation demands uh, our response. 
We have exponential population growth. The world just crossed the 7,000 million mark, 7 billion people as of October 31st, 2011. There's some debate whether it was a Filipino baby or Indian baby, but we'll let the demographics (laughs) understand that. Uh, The second reality is that two-thirds of the faith now uh, is in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Some actually uh, say it might be 75% of the faith. This is a powerful witness to 200 years of Western missions uh, when in the late 1700s, uh, William Carey set a sail from England all the way to India. Here was this brilliant man, absolutely brilliant, not... uh, knowing what was in front of him, huge pain. Uh, this is also the 200th year of, of Adoniram Judson, uh, the mm-hmm. first American missionary setting a sail, again for the same part of the world. Uh, the, the fruit of 200 years of sacrifice and labor and martyrdom is giving a huge birth to, to movements where the Christian faith is now uh, moved to, to, uh, to, the south, to the southern side and the eastern side of, of, of the world. In Asia and Africa and Latin America is the most robust growth. So uh, we are now looking at large population numbers, large presence of the faith. The third part of this equation which governs uh, my interpretation of reality is the fact that there are about 2.2 million pastors in the world. This is uh, several dozen times the number of missionaries in the world, Mm -hmm. but only 5% have formal training. That is, uh, about 2 million pastors in the world would have preached last Sunday, will preach next Sunday without any formal training. And they're basically winging it. Mm-hmm. They're undertrained and isolated. If we do not address this, not only do we have the largest numbers in history and, uh, of, of the world and for eternity, because this is the largest number of people ever lived and dying. I was in Beijing not long ago, and a uh, friend of mine says, Ramesh, between the countries you and I represent a third of the future population, the hell exists. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, of this dastardly doctrine, which we wish we could remove, but the Scripture is pretty convinced, Mm -hmm. and I have to adjust my sentiment to the truth of Scripture. And the fact that uh, the exponential growth of the church and and the explosive growth of human population and the large expanding presence of pastoral needs, if we do not address the church issue in Asia, Africa, and Latin America, it'll again become sociology rather than theology. So you're talking about church leadership in particular here. Yeah. For example, Rwanda. Mm-hmm. Rwanda in 1994 was the most Christianized country in all of Africa, and then they had this one point some million people uh, uh, killed of genocide. And mm-hmm. the Hindu worlds and the Muslim worlds are saying, if that's what Christianity means, we don't want anything to do with Christianity, mm-hmm. because Rwanda was a, was a Christian country. Now, of the pastors... They're undertrained and, and isolated. If we don't address them, uh, the pastors will continue to do this. I have been in parts of the world where uh, uh, pastors um, preach like, uh, you know, people need to climb trees to meet Jesus because Zacchaeus climbed a tree to meet Jesus. I've actually been pa- uh, among pastors in the world who didn't know Jesus was coming back. Hmm. And uh, I, had, I was in Bangladesh some time ago. Um, we had 616 pastors from 19 denominations, first time in the history of that great Muslim land. And I saw a pastor whose name was Pastor Islam. Pastor Islam. I said, tell me your story. He said, eight months ago, I was in the majority faith in, in, in Bangladesh, and now I've, I'm a pastor. I do not know what he's doing. Now, if we address this... Mm-hmm. We can actually correct the creedal and cultural misperception of the faith, which is where you're going with in this whole podcast, I think, mm-hmm. um, uh, Daryl. 
the the misperception of the faith as belonging to one geographical historical uh, part of the world is is, ne- is needing to be completely changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, for empirical research tells us that the the West does not represent the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. We can also undergird church growth with church health. Church growth is good, but if church growth is not accompanied by church health, uh, it uh, becomes extremely superficial easily turnable from from where uh, we want the faith to be. So I'd like to usually say uh, church growth can be the result, but let's not have church growth as the purpose. Let's mm-hmm. have church health as the purpose, and then church growth will be the result. We can also strengthen pastors by peer-level nourishment, and then we can unleash them because the pastor's health is the key to the church's health anywhere in the world. If the church is to be healthy, the pastor has to be healthy, and the pastoral staff needs to be healthy. And if the church is healthy, deriving itself from the pastor's health, it has community impact, and there's health in the community. And there are actually economists who are working on the Christian version of corporate social responsibility, which, uh, which they come to issues of how drug addiction and prostitution and alcohol abuse and crime comes down in places where the, the church is healthy inside a community. Mm-hmm. So the Global Proclamation Ministry uh, has... Uh, that's a very large project where we are engaged in at the moment. It's a 10-year human capital campaign to connect, unite, strengthen pastors all across our world. We're looking at the next 5% of the of the faith's leadership. 100,000 pastors from 200 countries in 10 years where we're trying to build them into groups of 25, at least 4,000 groups of 25, so that young pastors who are the future of the faith – they are the future of the faith in, in history and geography. What can we do to place them, train them, connect them, and unite them? And that's called our Global Proclamation Commission. Now, Dallas Emory has uh, wonderfully uh, cooperated in a powerful project. And when Dr. Mark Bailey became the president of Dallas Emory about 11, 12 years ago, I went with him with an idea an idea that was drawn from the, from the lawyer world. Uh, I found out that SMU had a program running on its campus, which was not an SMU program. It's just a bunch of uh, tw- young lawyers who were being brought from all across the world to teach them American democracy principles. They were there on the campus for three weeks. Mm-hmm. The host group, which rented the campus, said... We found out that not only could we teach them democracy principles, we found out that they became the best friends so that the Supreme Court Justice of Pakistan, which is the most dangerous country in the world right now, and the Supreme Court Justice of Peru became the thickest of friends, not because they went to law school together, but because they went to uh, these three weeks together. Hmm. And so uh, I went to visit them. I said, tell me about your program. Well, they've been doing it for 48 years. That's a long time. They gave me the speech I needed to give to Dr. Bailey at Dallas <laughs> Seminary. They said, tell them we want to rent out the campus of Dallas Seminary, and Dallas Seminary will give us academic uh, credibility, and we'll give them international intentional visibility for 25 countries of pastors. Dr. Bailey took it to the board of Dallas Seminary, and the board, after a couple of years' discussion, approved it. So every year to the campus of Dallas Seminary, REACH runs out the campus, and the seminary's been so gracious of that. We bring 25 countries of pastors, one per country, 
And they all uh, are selected extremely carefully. We don't actually select the pastors. We select referees who nominate pastors, including you, Daryl. Mm-hmm. And then we uh, f- feed them through a filter. Every pastor fits five criteria. One, they're under the age of 38, actually in the mid-30s. Second, they're the main pastor of the church, regardless of their size of the church. A mm-hmm. church in Jordan will be much smaller than a church in right. Brazil. Third, they're the main pastor of the church. That means they have main shepherding responsibilities. Fourth, they have a documented uh, interest in pastoral training. So that when we invest in them, they are investing in others. And fifth, they have 10 pastoral relationships with any age of pastor anywhere. So we call that the Dallas GPA, the Global Proclamation Academy, which meets on the campus of Dallas Seminary. And we bring in master coaches from all over the country usually presidents and deans of, of uh, Bible colleges and seminaries, and they're very grateful to be given one day away as a master coach away from administrative and bureaucratic responsibilities. <laughs> they're thrilled to be that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the Dallas GPA meets every year on the campus of Dallas Seminary for three weeks. The seminary has been just upstanding. And, of course, now these 25 pastors become voices and ambassadors for not only the gospel and reach, but for, the, for, for Dallas Seminary across the world. And, they're, they're, and they also uh, get a level of training that encourages them in their own, uh, in their own growth and the way they uh, lead a church. That is correct. We say it's not a leadership institute, but it'll affect their leadership. They focus on three areas, biblical spirituality, because mm-hmm. that's where everything uh, gets broken. Mm-hmm. Second, in theological discernment, mm-hmm. uh, where places uh, see the massive growth of the church, there's not enough discernment there. There is great breadth, but no depth. Third, we focus on effective preaching. The number one fear of a pastor and felt need of a pastor is the challenge of having to get up and preach next Sunday. Right. So we talk about effective preaching undergirded by theological discernment, which is undergirded by biblical spirituality. Okay, so you have this program that's been going on at Dallas for several summers now, and that, and I take it that the global global proclamation effort is transferring that principle um, to other locations and in other structures? Is that basically what's happening? Great question, yes. So we have the Dallas GPA. Mm-hmm. The second part of the Global Proclamation Commission, the 10-year project, mm-hmm. is what we call national versions of, of, of the Global Proclamation Academy. Mm-hmm. So for 10 days, we bring the 25 best young pastors inside a country across regions and denominations, Presbyterians, Pentecostal, Baptists, Methodists, but they focus on two of the three areas that we teach at Dallas, biblical spirituality undergirding effective preaching. They come over 10 days usually, the first weekend, get together and break down because they finally realize they're human beings, they are ministers of the gospel, and they're much more in common than what separates them, especially in a social environment, maybe an oppressive environment, where they have to be united together to make a statement for the faith. And they go through five days of master coaches. Their own Dallas Emory grads from the Dallas GPA mm-hmm. and local national leaders, they inform them and they teach them. But most importantly, both the Dallas versions and the national versions, we build them into cohorts of 25. Mm-hmm. These cohort groups are very critical. We want them to be friends for the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. Because now when they're 55 and 58 and 60, they're going to be the heads of denominations and abominations and heads of organizations and institutions. 
And so we are setting them up for the future leadership of the faith if the Lord Jesus comes back, uh, doesn't come back. If G, uh, this generation one is the one who's come down, generation two is the one which uh, happens in their country. But right in the middle of the decade, Daryl, uh, Reach is looking at sponsoring what we call the Global Proclamation Congress mm-hmm. for up to 5,000 pastoral trainers. Pastoral trainers. These are trainers of pastors all across the world, both in the formal sectors and the non-formal sectors. And I very much want you to be there. I want Dallas Assembly to be represented strongly there. Uh, these pastoral trainers, uh, they are found in uh, churches, they're found in institutions, they're found in organizations. In fact, we have just commissioned the Center of the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell to identify every confirmed pastoral training initiative in the world. It's mm-hmm. a one-year project, and they're discovering thousands of individuals, churches, organizations, and institutions. That's Todd Johnson working on Todd this? Todd Johnson is okay. working on it and his group working on this, right. and you know them very mm-hmm. well as well. And uh, so we want to choose the formal sector, a hundred top training schools, which will include Dallas Seminary, and about 300 non-formal organizations as the core of these 5,000 who will come. We're asking every one of the 5,000, every entity, to commit to 25 pastors a year mm-hmm. for the following five years. So we will have between 500 and 625. So you're building these cohorts in connection with each one of these organizations is basically the idea. That is correct. And the organizations pass to them. The organizations mm-hmm. keep them connected. Right, right. And in Reach, of course, we have the, our own program right. happening. Right, but you don't have enough people to handle that many, so you've got to do it this way. That is correct. Yeah. And just, I just wanted something that was large numbers mm-hmm. because we had large numbers of people and pastors. We wanted something that was long-term up to the middle of the 25th century, worldwide, 200 countries, church deep, because we're local church focused, not parachurch focused. We are pastor focused so that could be more fo- more relevant and on site. But we also wanted something that would be disciplined in execution. Uh, anybody with reasonable intelligence can come up with a good idea as the, inter- the execution That's where right. it breaks down. It'll be entirely scalable. For example, we just finished GPA in Mozambique, the 11th of this year. We only wanted 10. God allowed us to do 11. Uh, this is entirely scalable. If all that happened was the 2012 Dallas GPA or the 2012 GPA Mozambique, it'll be worth it on its own. Now, if God provides life and breath and everything, we'll do everything. If it provides more, we'll do more. If it provides less, we'll do less. Entirely scalable. But at the end of it, it is low cost per pastor, low cost per unit. Mm-hmm. The thing is, the formal training sector provides the backbone and the depth for the non-formal training initiatives. In fact, I do not know of any non-formal training initiative, which is not led by a formally trained guy. So a person like uh, our students at Dallas Seminary, if we can unleash them into the world so that they can multiply it in non-formal training sectors, we can address both the depth and quality issue and the breadth on the quantity issue. Okay, so just to put this all together, because you've been uh, taking about 15 minutes to explain this, we really have three levels of things that are going on. We've got the we've got the Global Proclamation Academy here that's Dallas. at Dallas that works with the with the very carefully selected leaders. We've got the national elements, and I take it that one of the goals is to produce as many national meetings across the globe as, as can be generated. We're looking at 136 countries, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is this this Congress, which, you know, when you hear you describe it, it's like a variation of 
of the Cape Town Lausanne effort, which had 4,000 people in attendance and also was quite global, and a lot of planning went into that before uh, people got together. Only now the focus on the on this meeting of 5,000 is to build these individual cohort units that are tied to these organizations so that there's an ongoing life to the uh, to the training and support of these pastors is that is that Daryl I knew you were bright but I didn't know you were this bright <laughs> but you're right there are three streams coming in mm-hmm. the, the version of the uh, Dallas uh, the version of the nations and then the the global proclamation congress is only for pastoral trainers it's not a generic congress like the Cape Town was. right it's only for pastoral trainers it's very niche focused it's mm. it's task focused but we have learned a lot from Cape Town and from other other events while in Cape Town uh, I put out an invitation to all pastoral trainers who were present it was unbelievable uh, you were there Dr Belly was mm-hmm. there and I was there and some others from Dallas Seminary we could not believe the huge impact Dallas Emory had had already mm-hmm. uh, among trainers in the world, mm-hmm. both by alumni, but also our content, our materials across, mm-hmm. across the world. But more importantly, we had a groundswell of pastoral trainers who are present from all across the nations. There are three kinds of training. Formal training, which leads to a degree at the end of it. That's what we do here. The second is informal training. That is just informal, mutual. Our mentors have had impact on us, and we uh, return the favor. But the focus here is on non-formal training. Mm -hmm. Non-formal training provides both speed and breadth to it. And uh, because of the huge needs worldwide, we want to add this component as a legitimate not just a pragmatic, but as a legitimate delivery system. Yeah, because not everyone can come to a seminary and come in residence and stay several years and extract themselves from their ministry, et cetera. Yes, and the, and the formal theological model it's itself going through a huge revolution. Uh, the campus models, the residential models, and we are facing challenges there. So how do we build a model, a ministry architecture, which will allow for us to do both deep and large Join us next week for part two of The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.